about them Braves? We, we just had clapping in a Presbyterian church. <laughs> Diane, you can leave. No, I'm joking. How about them braves? How about them dogs? I mean, sorry uh, to a couple of you who don't know how to celebrate victories. No, I'm joking. Isn't it funny how something as, as simple as your team can just really lift those spirits? I invite you on that note to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to finish up the first chapter this morning. Uh, I'm going to read verses 15 through 23. The, the focus uh, is going to be on this second portion that we did not cover uh, last week, uh, but I'm going to read verses 15 through 23 to once again put this into context. If you're visiting with us, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing from prison. He is in prison right now. He's in prison because he has been faithful to God in glorifying God and enjoying God forever. His faithfulness to God has landed him in prison. And what is he doing with his time in prison? He is writing to a, a church that is a very young church. They've only been around for a few years. They live in a, in a tremendously wicked, pagan setting. And there are temptations all around them. And Paul is writing to them in prison to encourage them in how to grow and how to mature as Christians. And so in this first chapter, what Paul has been doing is celebrating through prayer. He has been celebrating the work of God um, the work of God the Father, the work of God the Son, and the work of God the Holy Spirit in the life of his church. And here in verses 15 through 23, he transitions from celebrating or, or doing the adoration portion of prayer and, and, and um, lifting up the majesty of God in Christ. He now transitions to praying uh, what, what Daniel just did what we call the intercessory prayer, uh, or, or those prayers of petitions where we're asking God for help. This is Paul's uh, petitions where he is asking the Lord uh, to do something in the lives of the, the members of the church in Ephesus. And as I said last week, this, these are things that I pray for you. Um, these are things that I pray for me. For this reason, Paul says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. The church, which is Christ's body. The church, which is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are just just awe-inspiring truths that you are revealing here through this prayer of the Apostle Paul. And I admit that for myself, Lord, these things are beyond me in, in grasping in, in a way that captures just how awesome you are and just how awesome your work is in us is. So, Father, take this seed that is sown in weakness, cause it to give forth a harvest a thousandfold in the hearts and minds of your people today. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to come to you next Saturday, at our Reformation celebration, as you are here and have guests with you, <laughs> as you're here to enjoy this, this, this time of, of festive food and fellowship together as we have fun with games and, and with you know, the awards that come in those games. And, um, the candy, oh, the can- I asked the, the children this morning in Sunday school, would you rather have a Reformation celebration like they did at the time of the Reformation, where Zwingli led his church on a Friday to celebrate the recovery of the gospel by having a festival of sausages and beer. Not Jesus. (laughs) I asked them, would you rather have this celebration of sausages and beer Now, do you realize why that's a Reformation celebration, right? Why that's a gospel celebration? Because one of the the first principles of the Reformation is what we refer to as sola scriptura, that the scripture alone is our sole authority for faith and practice. The church had bound the consciences of Christians back then and said that they were required to fast on Fridays and Specifically, they were required to fast from meat on Fridays. God required that. If you're going to be a good Christian, you do not eat meat on Fridays. Well, as the original or, or as, as, the, as the Hebrew and, and Greek manuscripts of the Bible had been recovered and, and Reforma- these Reformation pastors were reading them and reading the Word of God, guess what they didn't find in there? They didn't find a command not to eat meat on Friday. And so how are we going to embody the Reformation? How are we going to put into practice that God doesn't require us to fast from meat on Fridays? How are we going to celebrate the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Well, we're going to eat sausages and drink beer on Friday. That was so revolutionary for their time. So I asked the children, do you want a Reformation celebration of the Reformation, sausages and beer? Or do you want to do what we're going to do, which is candy? 
Believe it or not, all of them voted for candy. There was one that voted for candy and beer, but I'm not going to say who that was. But as the true son of the covenant. These things are fun. If you came and you played a game and you won, and I held up a goldfish to you, I'm saying that because there is someone special in my life that that's what they always look forward to, the Reformation celebration at, at her church. Is you play a game, you win, and you got a goldfish in a bag. If, I, if, you, if you came and I gave you a goldfish in the bag because you won, and you're happy that you've got that goldfish in the bag, you're the child in this story, not the parent that's going to take care of it. You're happy you've got that goldfish in the bag, and then I say to you, okay, here's the, here, here's the deal. I will give you a penny for that goldfish. Are you going to be very motivated to, to give the goldfish over? Penny? Now, it's not that a goldfish is necessarily worth a penny, right? But value is not only found there. It's connected to the joy. It's connected to the happiness. You're probably not going to be very motivated to sell me that goldfish for a penny. What if I said, I will give you a million dollars for that goldfish? Are you going to be a little bit more motivated? Why? Has the goldfish changed? Is it actual gold? <laughs> Has anything changed in the goldfish? Absolutely not. But why are you more motivated to take the million dollars now that I'm, I'm offering that as a price instead of the penny? That's what you want. You want that more. And there is more value in that million dollars than in the penny, for sure. There's more value in that million dollars than, than that, that gold. To put it another way, if I came to you and said, I'm going to give you a million dollars if you give me that little Halloween-sized Snickers, just such a disappointment. If I came up and said, I'll give you a million dollars for that, and if you said, no way, how would I respond? I'd probably say, are you nuts? I'm offering you a million dollars for something that is clearly not worth a million dollars. See, whether you look at it from one angle or, or the other, the, the value of the million dollars is so much superior than the little trinkets that we're discussing. You and I get this. The Apostle Paul trying to do here in Ephesians 1 is he's using the same logic. What is it that's going to help you as God's people deal with the trials of living in a decadent culture that is constantly putting 
false gods, worthless gods, things that are of less value before you? What is going to, to lead you to say no to those things? It is for you to see and for you to savor just how superior the, the worth and value of Jesus Christ is to those other gods and the privilege that it means you be part of God's people. That's his logic. No one is going to give up a little Snickers and not take the million dollars. No, no one is going to do that. It's just unless you're crazy, unless you're not functioning properly. You're just, you're just not going to do that. But yet, beloved, you and I can do that day after day after day. For we will value things that are of such less worth than Jesus Christ and, the, and God the Father's opinion of you in Christ. You will give that up for the opinions of lesser things. You will give that up for your own opinion of yourself. You will give that up for the opinions that you hear from, from, the, wor- from the world from your workplace, from those who are not of infinite value and worth like Jesus Christ, you will value their opinions over Christ's opinion. You will value the world's truth over Christ's truth. You will value the world's experiences over God's experiences. That's what you and I do because sin still resides within us. How much easier is it for us to be encouraged in life when our team is winning than when we reflect upon how awesome God's work is on our behalf and in our lives? How much easier is it for you when you're feeling down, when you're feeling the pressures of this world, when you're struggling with your, with your life, with your vocation, with money, relationships, whatever it is, how much easier is it for you in those situations to feel a little better about things when the Braves are winning, when Georgia's winning, Tennessee, when they used to win. You ever realized how much easier that is? What Paul is trying to do is he's trying to help you to re-envision yourselves in Christ so that the majesty of Christ on your behalf is what leads you to rise above the trials and the temptations with you are faced. So Paul has been putting on display before us how awesome our triune God is. That God has given us all of these things. We're in Christ. He has blessed us, verse 3, with every 
spiritual blessings in the heavens. Paul prays that all this awesomeness of God would be something that you would embrace more and more that's what it means to grow in faith. It's not that you're learning more and more and more. It's that you are going deeper into what you have in Christ. You go deeper and you go deeper and you learn a little bit at a time to embrace that truth, to to experience God through his truth. And as you grow in that, as, and look, you will grow, you'll grow a little bit, and then you'll go backwards. Or sometimes you'll grow you know, uh, really fast, and then you'll go backwards, and then you'll keep growing. It's, it's just like how we grow as, as people. It, it goes in increments, and it is a process that takes place through time, but it is something where by faith, we are learning to embrace and experience God and his truth more and to value that more than what we are experiencing in our daily lives. More than what you're experiencing in your health. More than what you are experiencing at your job. More than you are experiencing with regards to your team. Us Alabama fans, it's hard to go further than what we what we have. That's what we are called to do, is to put our daily lives, our daily experiences, the thoughts that run around in your mind on a daily basis, the struggles that run around in your heart on a daily basis, is to learn to value the majesty of Jesus Christ in such a way that those issues you are facing, those trials and those temptations are put into proper perspective. And you stop trading Halloween trinkets for the glory of God. What Paul tells us here is that there is, verse 19, this immeasurable, now just stop right there, immeasurable. How much is that? We don't know because you can't measure it, right? It's infinite, eternal, something of infinite and eternal worth. His immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And how does he describe this immeasurable greatness? The working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Can you imagine how awesome God's power must be to raise Jesus out of the dead and then to seat Jesus on the eternal throne in the heavenly places? The power of God to take his son who died not for his sins but for ours and, and to take him and to raise him out of that grave and to give him a new body, a glorified body and then for him to ascend into the eternal 
rule of God over everything, beloved, that's the immeasurable power that is at work within you, raising you out of your death and into new life in Jesus Christ. Right now, we experience that in our regeneration and in our sanctification as God has raised us out of death and into new life in Christ, and he is molding us into the image of Christ. A day is coming when you will also receive a glorified body where you also will take your place at the right hand of God. It kind of puts some of the things you're struggling with into perspective, doesn't it? If the power that God used in raising Jesus from the dead and causing him to ascend to the eternal throne, if that power is at work within you, is there anything that you are experiencing in this life that is greater than that? Beloved, what I'm going to encourage you to see is you can't even compare a goldfish to a million dollars and capture the immeasurable, eternal difference of worth and value everything. immeasurable greatness of God's power in raising Jesus from the dead is at work in you. What is the obvious problem here? Why do I keep getting ingrown toenails? Why do my wife and I keep fighting? Why is work the drudgery in my life? Why can't I I find purpose. Why is it that I can't have good conversations with people I love? If you were a member of the church in Ephesus, what you would say is, but, but Paul, you're in prison. Is that what you're experiencing in prison? Chapter 3, Paul will say, yes, it is. What leads Paul, who is in prison because of faithfulness to Christ, to continue to serve that Christ while in prison? It's because the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ is so much greater in Paul's vision of his life his time in prison. And so it leads him not just to be able to get by, it leads him to keep serving that Christ. Because guess what? If the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work within Paul and through Paul and is at work within the members of the church in Ephesus, guess what Paul can accomplish even from a jail cell? He can accomplish continuing to magnify the worth of Jesus Christ to God's people so that they will embrace how awesome Christ is and let that define the way they are living in their particular circumstance. The surpassing worth 
of Jesus Christ through the immeasurable power of God at work within you. But notice then the privilege. That's the power. What's the privilege? Here as we, as Paul summarizes very quickly what we call the, the, the doctrine of the ascension of Christ. Jesus in ascending to Christ's right hand, this is not talking merely about geography. It is talking about authority. Jesus Christ in being raised from the dead and then being seated at God's right hand doesn't simply mean, by the way, that Jesus is sitting there and that he never stands or never does anything and and that he just is sitting there. What it means is that Jesus has been bestowed as the perfect God-man, the, the privilege of, of ruling on behalf of God over everything. It is about authority. It is, it is about his position as, as one in whom the rule and authority of the triune God is residing in a body, in the God-man Jesus. That authority that Christ has, we are told here, is over everything. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that right now is the exact same problem that we have with regards to the power of God at work within us. It doesn't look like it. The power of God that, G- that God used in raising Jesus from the dead, it doesn't really seem like that power is at work within me. I mean, look at my life. It doesn't seem that Jesus Christ is ruling over everything because look at the world. See, it's the same issue. It is that issue where we we receive and we rest upon the truth of Jesus Christ as God is revealing it to us and we wait with patience for the full realization of these things when Jesus returns. Full realization is going to happen where God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven as we pray. That will come at a time that will reflect the perfect, immeasurable glory of Jesus Christ. Until that time comes, Christ is working out his rule even as things seem to be continuing to be in rebellion against him. That rebellion is not a sign of of Christ's weakness. It's not a sign that he is not all-powerful. It's not a sign that Jesus is not ruling. It is a manifestation of the patience with which Christ rules right now. A patience that we are told has the purpose of Christ and his church accomplishing the purposes of bringing in many sons and daughters. It is for the purpose of the ongoing mission of God saving sinners from himself and from themselves. God is in the business of recovering sinners. He is in the business of remaking sinners. He is in the business of doing all of this through the work of Jesus Christ. Is there anything, then, that 
can stand against the mission of God with us? Is there anything that can stand against the mission of God in your life? Now, you're going to say no, but then this week you're going to go out and you're going to do just that. Be faced with something. Oh, I can't deal with this. Yeah, you can. That's what you have to embrace. This position, we are told, is, a, is a, a position that not only belongs to Jesus, but notice here. Where does the church fit within this relationship of the ascended Christ to everything? Well, it says that, that all things have been put under the, the feet of Christ. By the way, just, just a couple decades later, there would be in Ephesus the development of what's called Trajan's Fount. For Trajan, there was a statue that was, that was put there for the exaltation of Trajan, where Trajan is standing, and he has his left foot on the ground, and he has his right foot on the earth. It is not Trajan. It is not any Caesar. It is not any human ruler or authority, and it is not any other spiritual ruler or authority other than Jesus Christ that has been exalted over everything, where everything has been put under Christ's feet. Beloved, where are you and where am I in this metaphor? Well, notice what it says. We are his body. Let that sink in. Are you under the rule of Christ? You better believe it. But are you under his feet? You are part of that. He is the head. The church is his means for us is part of that union that we have with Christ, that, that we participate in his life, we participate in his righteousness, we participate in his love and his mission, we participate in his death, we participate in his resurrection, we also participate in his ascension. And there is a privileged status for us that though we are just like sinners who have rejected Christ, God, in his grace, we receive Christ, we are reborn in Christ, and we uh, receive the blameless standing of Christ, we are seated at God's right hand. Beloved, what that means for us is so indescribably powerful here. Because Jesus Christ is described here as the one who fills all in all. And yet the church is described as being his church. Now, any ideas what that means? Church is the fullness of the one who actually fills all in all. If Jesus is the one who fills all in all, is he incomplete? Does he lack anything? If he fills all in all? No. And yet, what is the privileged status that the church is given? 
just that we're God's people. Not just that we participate in his ascension. Paul tells us here is that the one who is not incomplete considers himself to be lacking Is he actually lacking something? But it is as if he considers himself to be lacking something. John Calvin says this is the highest honor of the church. That until Christ returns, and is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What consolation it is for us to learn that not until we are along with him does he possess all his parts or wish to be regarded. Measurable power of Christ within you. That privileged status you have in Christ. We are not under Christ's feet, even though we are instead we are seated with our God in heavenly places. By the way, Paul will say these exact words in chapter two. That in Christ you have been made alive, raised up, Beloved, let the superior work of Jesus and who you are in Jesus even as we celebrate the bread, even as we celebrate the good things that will happen in this life even as we celebrate the, Re the Reformation and you get free candy. Put all of those things in comparison to the unmeasurable superior work of Jesus. That work is not just out there. Our Father, so many things vie for our, 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 our attentions and our affections. So many things are vying for, for our faithfulness, and yet there is only one thing that is worth all of those things, and that is your Son. And through union with your Son, that the privilege of being drawn into the eternal fellowship and rule and mission Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May this grant us the confidence we need to actively follow Christ, to actively seek to put sin to death, to actively seek to put the superiority of the worth of Christ on display through our devotion, through our obedience, through, our, through the hope that we have 
Father, give us, a re- give us the opportunity to give a reason for that hope to anyone who will listen. To do this, Father, use your word and sacrament within our lives to accomplish the eternal purposes that you have put into place and that you have guaranteed through your Son. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.